Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12. It's a well-known story and unfortunate, to say the least, with what David committed. Even as we're going through the catechism questions, it was one late afternoon when kings went into war. David stayed and walked on top of the roof. And he saw a woman bathing and noticed that she was very beautiful. Instead of ending there, he sent someone and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite, one of David's 30 mighty men of valor that had stood beside him all the years now, right now, fighting for him in the battlefield. So what does David do? He sent messengers, brought her over, he lay with her, and she returned home. And soon she conceived and sent a message to David saying that she was pregnant. Instead of repenting of his sin of adultery, Instead of recognizing that he was breaking this covenant fidelity of this committed man and his marriage with Bathsheba, instead of recognizing that he dishonored the kingly office that God had given him, he fought and thought to cover his tracks. And breaking the seventh commandment that we are going through, Uriah, what does he do? Excuse me. David, what does he do? He brings Uriah home with an excuse to get a report, but in real plan to get a conjugal visit set up. But Uriah, being a man of principle, while the ark of God is in the battlefield and the armies of Israel is fighting, he refuses to go home and enjoy and be with his wife. So David takes plan B. Well, Let's get him a little bit inebriated. Get him drunk, and maybe his defenses will be down, and he won't be able to resist his wife. But David still doesn't. Yes, he gets affected by the drinks, but he refuses to go home and be with his wife. So finally, he comes with plan C. He puts a message in Uriah's very own hand and tells him to go and tell General Joab, it's a very important message. Don't look at it. Because in that note, basically, David commands Joab to kill Uriah. Basically, the plan is to take the troops up to the wall, enemy wall, of course, and withdraw from Uriah so that he gets struck down, sentencing him to his own death. David is so focused on himself, the consequence of what's right around the corner, the discovery, what if people find out, that he had done this, he wants to keep his sin secret and covered. So not only with breaking of the seventh commandment, committing adultery, commits murder. And yes, David gives a military funeral with all the honors, as if it was a noble act for him to marry his widow. In chapter 11, of 2 Samuel ends with Bathsheba burying David the son. And in chapter 12, 
It's got to be at least nine months since the adulterous affair. God sends Nathan the prophet to David. You can imagine perhaps what those nine months might have been like. But Nathan, instead of directly confronting David, he tells a parable. He tells a parable of a man who is really wealthy with lots of animals, lots and lots, and contrasted with a poor man who had one ewe lamb, a female lamb that was like a daughter to him. Now, the rich man had a visitor come, but instead of throwing a feast with all that he had, he eyed on this one ewe lamb of this poor man and slew that lamb and gave that lamb to the visitor to eat. When David heard this story, he began to become angry and wanted to put him to death. And it was at that moment that Nathan, the prophet, in bringing God's word, told him, you are the man. Chapter 11, the adultery, the murder, ends with the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But thanks be to God, when David was confronted by God's word through Nathan, David confesses that he had sinned against the Lord. Now, Nathan did say, why have you despised the word of God? Why have you ignored the very commandments that God had given you? Now, you can imagine maybe writing out your confession of perhaps, maybe you can't imagine, because I don't think any one of us would want to do this. I don't think any one of us would want put in writing of perhaps the darkest, deepest, despicable thing that we've done and ask CGS Music Ministry, can you write up a hymn with these lyrics that's based on these sinful acts of mine? And can you imagine singing together week after week, month after month, year after year? Because that's what actually happened with David's psalm for the past 3,000 years. People of God have been singing the chapter starts with this very important line, to the choir master. This is given to be sung, a psalm of David, and it gives us the context. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Today, I want to just uh, highlight five marks of godly repentance as we look into this psalm. First, God's character. Second, sin. Third, cleansing. Fourth, creating. And fifth, vows. First, godly repentance focuses on God's character. You look at verse 1, and there are three different Hebrew words translated in our ESV with mercy, steadfast love, abundant mercy. It's a character of the Heavenly Father, His merciful character, that leads us to repentance. That gives us any hope for forgiveness, actually. And especially this word, you might be familiar, steadfast love, this absolute commitment, this undeserved, unconditional love of God toward his 
covenanted people. Covenantal love of God. You don't earn it, and you can't unearn it. And it is this that, God, that David comes to. He doesn't ask, God, give me what I deserve, because he knows what he deserves. Treat me mercifully, graciously. It is the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. I think many of us, as we go into time of confession, we're perhaps in a habit of confessing. Or for those of us who feel obligated to repent, sometimes we might find ourselves relying on our own works. As if repenting means turning our life around so that you can come to God. But the problem is, you can never do that sufficiently. You can't get your life turned around enough to be in right standing before holy, holy, holy God. So a discouraged, self-reliant sinner would see God as the problem, not the answer. A self-reliant sinner who hates his sin hates God even more because this God is requiring something that he can't perform. And you might be familiar with Martin Luther. Before he experienced the gospel of mercy, he would be terrified by the guilt of his sin. Going to his confessor, stop it over and over again, confessing in sin, driving the priest mad as he spends hours and hours divulging, confessing. And he was once asked, don't you love God, Martin? And he would respond, love God? I hate God. He hated this God who would demand this that he couldn't meet up. He couldn't find a way of escape from this judgment from a holy God. Pastor James Boyce said long ago that mercy is a sole basis of any approach to God by sinners. We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice. Justice strikes us with fear and causes us to hide from him. The only reason we dare to come to God and hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. So godly repentance focuses on the merciful character of God. That's what you start with. That's what you're fixed on. And second, um, sin. As you look at verses 1 through 2, godly repentance recognizes the severity of sin, takes ownership of our sin, and confesses his sin before God. Recognize that we are in a bad place. This is bad news. And in order to express the completeness, the fullness of his bad state, he uses three different Hebrew words. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my, 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 sin, sin, sin is everywhere. The word for sin that you see in ESV repeats six times, and it means to, you familiar probably, fall short or miss the mark. And David knows he has missed the mark. Apostle Paul later on reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin, the word sin is used most frequently six times, and then second word, transgressions, is used three times in verse 1, 3, and 13. And transgression, 
um, refers to crossing a boundary, breaking of rule. David knows. He knows he broke commandment seven. He knows he broke commandment number six and myriad of other commandments. He knows that he has crossed boundaries that God had clearly told him, do not cross. And the word iniquity used three times, referring to perversion, the corruption, this nature that is depraved. Later on, David talks about being born in sin, mother conceiving him in sin. It's talking about our sinful nature, that we are sinful in our conception. Sin, 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 all kinds of sin, reminding, confessing that he is in desperate need of some good news because he knows there's some bad news as he reflects on his life. He doesn't blame shift. He owns it. It's my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. It's not just a head knowledge, but visceral, vivid, present consciousness of the fact that he has broken God's laws. He feels dirty. He feels dirty for having done what he's done. And probably for the past at least nine months, it's probably been gnawing at him, eating him up, not quite able to praise God because that's what sin does. It keeps us from coming to God and worshiping him because it separates us. How do you lift up a song of worship and praise when you know you're not right with him? He knows he needs to be washed. There's this filth. Get rid of the spot that he can't on his own. He says something that's pretty interesting. Against you and you alone have I sinned. It's not saying that he didn't sin and do wrong against Bathsheba. It doesn't mean that he didn't sin in murdering Uriah. But it points out, ultimately, when we break his commandments, we are breaking God's law. We're rebelling against the king. When we break any of the commandments 6 through 10, it's because we have broken the first four. We break these laws of not honoring our parents, committing murder, committing adultery. We steal, we give false testimony, we covet things. Do do we know why? It's because at the end, we do not worship the Lord. We do not have him as our center. We do not delight in him or rejoice in him. And all of that, he comes back by saying that he's been a sinner from the very beginning. It's not just that he committed adultery and murder, but from the very beginning, sin has been a part. He's infected with sin. He's brought forth in iniquity. He inherited it from his parents. And he doesn't use that as an excuse. It's like, it's not like I did something. No, he owns it, and he turns to God. He knows even more deeply that he needs the cleansing power that comes from God alone. 
The forgiveness is not something that he can attain on his own. Bad news indeed. And because of that, godly repentance in recognizing the bad news depends on the good news, the forgiveness. The forgiveness that comes from God alone who can cleanse us, us, us from our sins. Three words again. You see a pattern here. Three different words for forgiveness translated in ESV. Blot out, wash me, cleanse me. Old Testament has these ceremonial laws that God instituted for the cleansing from sin. The atonement rituals, metaphors of deep meaning that really ultimately points to us that only God can truly cleanse pointing us to the one who alone will ultimately make this happen. Blot out. The word blot out is used. It means to, as the word, wipe away clean. That God would wipe away the record. Back in old days, writing, I mean, we, we have books to print and write on, but back in the old days, writing instruments, especially paper, parchment, papyrus, um, leather, vellum, they were very expensive and precious. So when someone, when a scribe would write, and after a while, it's like, you know what? The content of this writing is not that important anymore. I want to just use it for something else. They would um, basically scrub the document clean, and there'll be some residual imprints, but they'll often like flip it the other way, and they'll write something else. They'll rewrite them with something more valuable and important. David is saying, blot out my record of life and rewrite it. Just scrub it down, make it clean. Washing is probably more familiar. Imagery of washing clothes, filthy garment that needs to be scrubbed. I mean, sometimes we eat our food and drop something and we find ourselves trying to scrub that thing out. And David knows that is dirty, filthy. He needs to be blotted out, needs to be washed out. And third, he knows he needs to be cleansed. And this is a ritual language of cleanliness that allows you to come into the presence of God. He knows that forgiveness can only come from God. He longs to be clean because he knows he is dirty. And to kind of wrap it up, he ends with this image of hyssop. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssops are these kind of hairy leaves that grew between cracks and um, in the Old Testament time, they'll be used to sprinkle either water or blood. It represented God's cleansing power. It's like, God, cleanse me with this, and I'll be whiter than snow, because he knows the guilt he has. And the word purge me basically means purify me from sin, or more literally, unsin me, desin me. And it's only God who can do such act. Back in Old Testament time, there was a cleansing rite for those who've been cured of leprosy. Um, 
often involved two birds, two live birds. One bird was killed, and the blood was shed, and the hyssop brush was dipped in that blood and sprinkled on the leper, who's now healed. And after, you have the second live bird that will be dipped in the blood of the former bird and will be released to the sky, symbolizing the complete removal of sin and guilt. And that former leper will be white as snow. And in being white as snow is now washed and reintroduced to the community and be able to worship God with the community. This ritual and sacrificial atoning rituals foretold ultimately of the atoning work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like the first bird, Jesus was put on death for our sin. He died to pay for the penalty that our sin deserved under God's law. And when we trust in Christ's death, that blood is applied to us. And we're made clean. And that guilt is sent away. As that live bird flew away. And that's why when we come together we remember what Apostle John said. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Pastor Eugene took time to be more intentional because it's easy to get into that kind of uh, unplug, just going through the motion. We can't do that, brothers and sisters. Fourth, Creating, when you look at verses 10 through 12 and beyond, we recognize that godly repentance doesn't just end with a desire for forgiveness, but longs for God to do something in our hearts, something new, leading to renewal in our relationship with our God. There's a language repeating here, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, And then at the end of verse 12, a willing spirit. David knows a clean heart is what he needs, as he's been so clearly shown about the sins. When he asks that clean, create in me a clean heart, the word create is a special word also. You'll see that in the beginning of Genesis when God created. Same word. Asking God to do something that's completely new. He's asking God for a new heart, new creation. Because at the end, he knew that he sinned because of sinful nature. And that something new was not possible for him to handle. It's something that God had to do. And we rejoice in gathering as saints because we know, as Apostle Paul writes, if if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. Behold, everything has, old has passed away and new has come. He pleads for renewal. He's committed to being changed by God. There is godly repentance versus worldly sorrow and repentance because truly forgiven people of God are committed to being changed by God. Brothers and sisters, repentance isn't just turning away from sin. 
you turn away from sin and you walk with God in holiness. Words for sin comes up some 12 times in the first half of the psalm. Verses 1 through 9, word for sin comes up 12 times. Word for God um, comes up once in those verses. But the second half, word for sin comes up just twice. And word for God shows up six times. As one commentator said, with confession, sin gives way to God's presence. When we confess, when we repent, we can get back into the presence of God that we've been missing out, that has kept us from praising that has kept our mouths shut, that has been eating up inside. It's not an accident that Apostle Paul talks about being careful coming up on Sundays for the Lord's Supper because if you come up in sin, it's going to also affect your health. And he, he went even further by saying some of you are sick, some of you have died. You know, when you look at this psalm, besides the first line, that gives us a context of what happened in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, David actually doesn't say much about, it's like, God, help me so that I'll be restrained in my sexual desire so that I only look to you and what you have approved. No, he doesn't ask for accountability. He doesn't ask for protection of his eyes or even his thoughts. Because, in fact, he, he longs for the joy of salvation. Because it's people who don't have the joy of salvation, knowing Christ, who are led to break the commandments. As I said before, we break the second half of the commandments because we break the first four. When God doesn't have that place in our heart that captures and captivates us, we will naturally turn to the things of the world to satisfy and worship. David doesn't say a word about sex, but he says, let me hear the joy and gladness. His bones have been broken, and he wants to rejoice, and he asks God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation and uphold him with a willing, firm, Spirit. When we sin, it steals a bunch of things from us. A believer who sins is probably the most miserable person because we lose purity of heart, we lose steadfast of spirit and we lose the joy of salvation but when we repent when we repent before God as David repented here these things are restored godly sorrow godly repentance produces gospel joy restores, restores the joy of salvation and it gives us this godly resolve and commitment 
to live out in a way that pleases God. We call that sanctification. Yes, salvation is by grace alone, but when we know that we are cleansed by Christ's precious blood, and as we rejoice in this priceless gift of salvation, it leads us to want to, long to, desire more godly life out of gratitude. Finally, vows, when we look at verse 13 through 15, we see that godly repentance leads us to make vows unto the Lord, showing commitment to spread the good news and sing praises to him. David vows that I will teach transgressors your way. My tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. My mouth will declare your praise. David knows that God will forgive those who have a contrite heart, no matter how heinous the sin is. And the ultimate aim, as we come together every Saturday morning to pray, is that we long for other sinners like us to come back to God in repentance and faith. That's why John the Baptist, that's why Jesus, that's why Peter, when he preaches, calls it repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. The word for turn back is the same root word for repentance and to return. As David sees God restoring him the joy of salvation, he longs that other sinners will be restored. I think about this psalm and think about who it's written for. Well, to the choir director, I can only imagine, because we don't know, can only read between and use my imagination, how many times he must have sung or tried to sing but couldn't utter words of praise. But here we see again and again, twice, he promised to praise God. He promises to declare your praise. And he is humble and broken and contrite that he brings his sins to the people of God and experiences and invites other sinners to also come so that they too would turn and be restored. Verse 17 kind of captures the foundation of godly repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is the foundation to every Christian repentance that we come with brokenness and contrition. And we go with brokenness and contrition all the way until he calls us home. Jonathan Edward speaks of this Christian joy in his um, Religious affections, all gracious affections, including feelings and emotions that are a sweet aroma to Christ, are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble broken-hearted joy. Psalm 51 
assures the people of Israel that God is a God of steadfast love, abundant mercy, and will forgive even the most heinous sins if we come with a broken and contrite heart. And all this elaborate system of laws for animal sacrifices just really shows to express God's expression for his people to be forgiven. All the payments that people made to offer animals that one day will be fulfilled in one only complete, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son to pay for our sins. And Jesus, he died to pay the penalty. Even as he uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that he was forsaken so that we would never be. Jesus' sacrificial death, thanks be to God, opened the way for us to God the Father. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world as a sin sacrifice. I want to just invite us and remind us during the week, in our moments of weakness, but especially when we come together, when we worship. Think about the way you sing praises, or if you don't. What's keeping me? What are the sins in my life that I need to confess? And that we look to his abundant mercy, steadfast love that he has shown through his son, Jesus Christ. If God was willing to blot out David's horrible sins of adultery and murder, if God was willing to forgive Israel of its grievous sins of idolatry, how much more? How much more will God forgive us now that Christ has offered his life for the sins of the world? Because of Jesus' sacrifice, God will forgive when we ask with a contrite heart. And my hope and prayer is that because we get this good news, we give him praise, we give him glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love towards sinners like us. Lord, we confess our sins before you, our sin our sin. Yes, our sin. But Lord, even more, we thank you for your forgiveness, for cleansing us, for cleansing us, for deeply cleansing us of our wretched, dirty sin through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ the perfect lamb. Would you create in us a clean heart, a new heart? Make us a new creation. And Lord, may our life be a living testimony, sharing this good news with other sinners that you have restored us so that they too might turn and be restored.
and sing our lives as we gather together and throughout the week praises to you for you alone are worthy. Amen.